Well, we've been gone a few months and we apologize for that. I hope you enjoy this new episode. It's a little bit for the birds. You might hear some birds in the background. We attempted a bird game and kind of failed miserably, but we left it in here for you all to either record, fast forward over, or enjoy. Anyway, here's your next episode of Biocompatibility. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMS is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Okay, welcome everyone, everyone, everyone back to a new episode of Biocompatibility. We're rusty. I have a, we haven't done this for a couple of months, so admittedly, we we're a little rusty. <laughs> We've been slacking. We've yeah. been slacking. We've been slacking. I've taken a vacation. Don had a kid get married. Who knows what else has happened in the last couple of months, but we, we're back. We we went from, you know, winter to spring to summer, and now it's time to go outside. So we just, yeah, we're, we're, we're staying, we're talking less inside. So that's our excuse. We're talking less inside. We could always record outside. We could. I mean, that, no saying. We could play the bird game. We can record any. Oh, no, we could play the bird game. For those of you that don't know, Don has bird skills. So no, let, me, let me comment on that. Let I need to introduce you first. Oh, go right ahead. <laughs> Do that first and then we'll come back to the bird thing. We'll come back to the bird. Okay, so yeah. Phil Smeraldo is joining us. Those of you might remember Phil's joined us for a couple of episodes previously. And we're actually currently conducting a NAMSA training series event. And while they're doing workshops, we're recording a podcast. So. This is our ultimate multitasking without actually doing two things at the same time. We're really just focused on this one thing. So, okay, Phil. So thanks for joining us again. Oh, that's, that's great. I think, I think the last time, you know, I think the last time I was part of this was, was in 2019. So it's been a few years now. Oh gosh. He actually Man. knows. Oh, yeah. I thought. <laughs> What's the matter? We're sorry. It's been so long. Oh, no, that's, that's all right. I've, I've been, I've been actively listening, just not the. Uh, You've been busy listening to the others, but let me, let me talk about the bird story real quick. I was, I was, so Don and I, you know, we talk about biocompatibility related stuff on a regular basis. Okay. Multiple times per week. The other day, this is probably what a couple months ago or something like that. I was on the phone with Don talking about biocomp this, that, and the other. And I walked outside because it was a nice day. (laughs) And all of a sudden the birds start squawking and Don goes, that was a blue jay. He's like, what are you talking about? So, so he, he can even interpret the bird calls through the phone. Through the phone. He doesn't yeah. even have to be there alive. It's amazing. But, but, but any people that are listening that happen to be avid birders, which I, I wouldn't categorize myself as an avid birder. I, I do like listen to my birds. I do have an app on my phone that identifies birds, but you know, that sort of thing. Because everybody does. But, but <laughs> yeah. identifying a bird blue jay by call is pretty pretty like entry-level stuff when it comes to birding people so you know okay i think he just called us stupid well i i have identified them before but only because i could see them so (laughs) and hear them but i I know it's very distinctive i just couldn't tell you what it is but yes i remember it being very distinctive cardinals are pretty distinctive as well anyway so anyway bird skills we've got bird skills 
He might be a not an avid bird watcher, but biocompatibility person. How about that for a transition? There we go. We might not know our birds, Phil. There you go. That's right. <laughs> but we know our cytos. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so today we thought we would talk about something that has come up a lot in some training events and in Don's have conversations with customers recently about is the test article. What is the test article? We did an episode of part 12 way when we first started, which seems like ages ago. And so one of the things we thought we'd elaborate on a little bit more today is helping to address, you know, what is a test article? How do I define my test article? How do I make sure only the patient contacting materials are tested? What are some challenges and some opportunities there? So that's my setup for our unplanned, unscripted, no outline podcast. There we go. Perfect. That's that's how how these things work. You know, that's how it works. Want a little spontaneity in what we're doing here today. But yeah, and and you know, just to define the situation, we are not going to jump into the GLP regulations and go into no. what a test article is by GLP definition. That's not very good goal. call out. Great call out. <laughs> But we will, like you said, Sherry, I mean, defining the test article in the context of biocompatibility, what is it that I'm going to test? And what is it that I'm not going to test? Just as important. And how should it be conditioned? How should it not be conditioned? I mean, there's, you can get in down to the weeds pretty quickly here with all the little nuances. And like you said, it's, it's, I've, I've seen comments from regulators lately that would tell me that they're going to this level of detail. So we better be thinking about it ourselves or we're setting ourselves up for a, a situation that we will find a hard time getting out of in some cases. Yeah. I mean, the regulators have to understand what your test article is. And if you can't define it, you don't want them to be defining it because they may, they may make a wrong, a wrong determination. So, so where do we start, Don? I know that you for years managed our, our BPU unit at NAMSA, which is where they, they prep samples. So they're cutting and dividing and dicing and tossing and scattering, smothering and whatever they do at Waffle salad House. Are we prepping <laughs> devices? I don't know. I was making hash browns at Waffle House. It's um, a distinction. I'm not quite sure my, what it is. But. <laughs> my Southern listeners will know uh, what scattered, smothered, and diced is. But well, we're not going to do that to your devices. But anyway, there's a lot of prep in what happens in that unit. So where do we start? I think the the simplest thing that, well, I say simple, but it's not simple, is just defining, first off, which components of your device you're actually going to, quote, test in a study. And, you know, the simplest way that I can think of putting it is starting with direct, indirect, and non-patient contact. And, And certainly, by definition, direct and indirect kind of go into the stew, <laughs> into the pot, non-patient contacting, stay out of it. It's not when edible. It comes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that commercial, how do you know what to eat? What, what What's eats and what's not eats? Oh, yeah, Uber Eats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not eats. <laughs> this is not eats. <laughs> so this is this not is test. Not test. This is not <laughs> we just ripped off Uber Eats. Okay, yeah. so defining contact, whether it's direct or indirect, versus no contact. So right. seems simple enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, not the concept, you know, direct and indirect. Direct, obviously physically contacts the patient. Indirect, 
delivers a fluid or gas substance into the patient, but doesn't contact it directly. So if you have a device that has direct and indirect, you need to essentially include in your studies, your extraction-based studies, primarily what we're talking about, those components that have direct and indirect patient contact. Yeah. And, and non-patient contacting, which I always define based on the intended use per the instructions for use, you know, what is intended to contact the patient and what's not. I don't cloud the muddy the waters with incidental contact. I'm not even sure what that means. Uh, well, I, I know what some people say that it means, but if I, if you're worried about somebody brushing up against something versus intended use, I put that aside into a different evaluation and I focus on indirect and direct. Okay. I got to say, Don, though, but I think there, I think there <laughs> is some opinion. Conf- I, no, 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 no different opinion. But I, I, I think there are some customers who get confused on what yes. indirect contact actually means. Because mm-hmm. yes. I've, I've worked with some device manufacturers where they say, I've, I've got this particular device or this material. And it is completely encapsulated in some type of other polymer. Yeah. But that stuff, that core, that core material, they tell me has indirect contact. And, and I'm just I'm just thinking, no, it can't have indirect because it's completely encapsulated in another material. And so, you know, I think that's just one other yeah, what should I say, bit of confusion or and, and that and you know, that even gets more complicated. Because we started off simple, now we're now we're getting complicated. I didn't want to complicate it too quickly, but but you know, by by what you say, if I if I encapsulate material A with material B, right? Do I have evidence that there is no contact? Can I leave it out of testing the stuff on the inside? And that's where it gets tricky too, because you encapsulate something in silicone, I've been told by more than one regulator, look, we're not so sure that silicone is, you know, makes them, is impervious to body fluids. Things can migrate in and out of silicone. So then it may begs the question, okay, do I leave it in, but don't cut my device up so that I don't expose it directly, but I leave it in its form so that I can do my testing and say that all of the device in its final finished form is there. I just didn't cut it up to like enhance the exposure to the stuff underneath. And that's, I think if, yeah. if you want to say that something's has no exposure because it's quote unquote encapsulated in some cases, I think you're going to need data to support yeah. that, that fact. I would agree with that. So I think that that could be an interesting point, right? Because if I have something encapsulated and I test it while it's encapsulated, then yes, I'm technically putting non-patient contacting into my extract, but it's not taking any surface area. It's not being into my ratio. And that was some of the questions that we kept getting was if I can't separate the two and it's like, if it's encapsulated, okay, leave it there, but it's not taking any surface area. It's not seeing the extract and modifying your ratios on your extract. But if it's a handle to your catheter system (laughs) and it's, yep, it's going to be hard to separate it, but we have to separate it. Like do not put that into the soup basically is. And I think that that could be, but I think, you know, that was an interesting point. I hadn't thought of it could technically be non-contact and still be in there. It's just not calculated in your ratio. If you want to keep it in your encapsulation, the alternative, right. Would be to manufacture the thing without the stuff. Inside the encapsulation. 
<laughs> well said. <laughs> I mean, can you say it any better? Um, podcast is done. That clears all <laughs> We're a little chippy today. We don't even have Nobody any beverages. Nope. No beer. There's no beer being consumed, like sometimes after exactly. training. So, you know, I think that could be, I was trying to think of what other really, really, really hard situation there might be. And how do I separate patient contact from non-patient contact? Do you have one? I mean, other scenarios, I mean, situations where you say have an implantable, where you wouldn't include stuff that's on the inside in that regard, like pacemaker can. Right. You know, there I have data hermetically sealed so I could leave the brains out of the can and just give somebody the the can with an epoxy header and a maybe silicone overmold, this, that, and the other thing for the actual test. Now, one thing even there, you know, if we kind of go into situations where you justifiably leave stuff out, you know, one thing you have to be careful of is by virtue of leaving it out, did you skip a, the process that would add it in? And if you skip that process, could you be skipping the potential for contamination on contamination. the exterior to be? Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard that one come up before as well. So I still might put it through the quote unquote manufacturing line and simulate what I would do if I was putting the stuff on the inside. It's just nothing's going in. So, you know, but in terms of other situations where you have to take things apart, you know, I guess in your goal to separate patient contacting and non-patient contacting stuff, I've seen some pretty crazy things done in laboratories just to get samples disassembled. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be afraid to let your lab do what they do best, which is have them, you provide them an example device that's not going to be used for testing, but it's going to be used for them to figure out how to get your device into an extraction with the right stuff added. Right. <laughs> the other stuff out. And so one person, you know, mentioned to me, but then that, that causes like variance between sample prep at laboratories or whatever. And I'm like, well, those instructions need to be written to be replicated. So, I mean, when you're doing one sample prep at one location, I mean, for whatever reason, if you're changing laboratories, you should be able to share those prep instructions to to aid in that prep. Now, the second laboratory might not like what the first laboratory did, which of course (laughs) is always, which of course is always an option. But I mean, I guess I, you know, it's part of trusting those experts and in, in working with your study directors and those folks that, you know, know how to do this stuff really, really well. And I, and I think I've even worked through a, a scenario for a, a, a particular device where it needed to be disassembled or, or the patient contacting components needed to be separated from the non, you know, that type of thing. And, and in fact, the customer actually came out on site and, and helped you take it apart helped, helped take it apart and and they you know and i i think it was a combination of both i think they sent out a dummy device like the day before the test prep was actually going to be made and said look here's a dummy device or here's a device i'm going to show you what i'm going to do tomorrow to to take this thing apart and they actually walked the the laboratory through it it worked out very well yeah but you know and i'm not saying that that needs to happen for every single scenario but that's an option i think i think that's a, a legitimate option because, you know, if you don't get it right, yeah, you could be in a, a bad scenario down the road. So, you know, just something to think about. Yep. And and I think kind of take that 
you know, what we're talking about in terms of direct, indirect, and non-patient contact in one step further, you know, you have to realize too that there's going to be certain studies where the preparation is going to be different for that one study than it was for the other studies. Correct. Um, hemocompatibility is is okay. that that kind of oddball out right there. It's not really, some of these studies aren't really extractions, they're exposures to test systems, whether it be plasma or serum. But what you include in those studies is, is primarily the direct contacting device components, the, those components that directly contact circulating blood, to be specific. So that looks different than what you might use for your intracutaneous irritation study and your sensitization study. So you get, you know, you got to realize that. And that's, again, you know, we, we talk about laboratories, but that's where, you know, you, you hope and trust that the laboratory that you're working with has that knowledge, that experience, but definitely benefits if you have it too, because, you know, you want to kind of double check each other in terms of what is put into that protocol really reflects what you know needs to be in your test. Oh, I mean, let's think about it. If I was, if I was a regulatory reviewer and I had 20 extraction-based studies to review, you know, at some point you're going to say extracted the same way, extracted the same way. Oh, different. What's going on here? You know, and you're going to yeah. raise the question. So yeah. not only, <laughs> I think when you go to submit and summarize the testing, you need to explain why those differences are there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have seen on a rare occasion where one, one laboratory did test A, B, and C, and another one did D and E, and the extractions just didn't line up. And that's, and, and then you couldn't, I couldn't figure out the logic behind it. And, and the key to the logic was no longer around. Um, <laughs> so worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're kind of like, okay, do I make something up? Cause I can, but it's, it's not the best case scenario for sure. And to your point, Sherry, that's, you know, this stuff needs to be written down so that's anybody could follow it and you come out with the same, you know, parts included in those same parts excluded that you want out of there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it certainly is tempting to go, well, the easiest thing is just to throw this all in there, but you know, that, that is, that's diluting your, your concoction there. And you're exactly. certainly going to get snagged on that. Um, at least by the FDA, I would think notified bodies also pick up on that as well, but the FDA certain will pick up on that. So what exactly. about more of the like direct tissue type studies, like implant studies, you know, obviously those aren't going to be prepped the same way my extract is, but, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how do I take something the size of a a hip and, you know, in vivo model. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, I think some of those situations that were, that when you start implanting things, that's when you get into an adequate representation of the final product. It's just not functional. So in your example, Sherry, you know, if you take a hip stem and now I'm going to do a bone implant study in a small animal model where the hip implant will obviously not fit. <laughs> um, sure. You know, certainly you know, manufacturing pins that, that go through the exact same manufacturing process, same material. I would say the one thing that you know, you still have to watch out for as well. Might not have been such a concern historically, but I've seen it come up lately, is that when you make that representation of the finished device, obviously it's got to be sterilized in the same way, but, you know, you want to make sure it's exposed to the same primary packaging. 
as odd as that sounds, <laughs> um, you know, I've seen lately things get tripped up because they made an adequate representation in terms of materials and processes, but they didn't carry it all the way out to it being sterilized in the right package. That was, it seems like not a big deal, but that was noted as a significant issue by a regulator. So, you know, definitely want to watch out for that in that type of scenario that you're talking about, Sherry. Right. For sure. And then also, so you have a multi-component implant. It likely can't all be implanted at the same time. So it's may, maybe you're going to need a custom study to make sure that every, every component that's implanted gets the proper exposure and the proper evaluation, those types of things. You know, you want to say this whole thing, you can't see me, but I'm holding my hand. This whole thing has to go in there, but it can't go in there. So it's going to have to go in in bits and pieces in order for all of those parts to be exposed and evaluated properly. And then too, I mean, you might, in some cases, you might be looking at, you know, junctions between two materials that are implanted. And so you, you know, you cut this one millimeter section or one, one centimeter section that covers that junction joint plus two different Only, materials. Yeah, right. Right. And then you, you know, when it comes to histopathology, you really, you know, you're looking at multiple cross sections through that tissue to make sure you get the whole site evaluated, not just right. one spot, you know, multiple spots, because you're not going to hit one. Well, unless you do it longitudinally, but that really talks to the orientation of the component in the tissue as it's explanted and all that good stuff. So yeah, implants are going to take on a little bit different sample prep mentality than extracts are. It's got to be prepared for that. Right. But that, that does bring up a good point, though, because, because Sherry, you just mentioned, you know, the example where you have a multi-material type device, right? And, 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 and like you, and then Don mentioned that you have to account for that junction where those two materials actually meet, because the, the concept there is that, well, it's the big what if. What mm-hmm. if chemical from one material interacts with chemical from material two? And they somehow interact and form this new chemical that's highly toxic, highly irritating, whatever. Yeah. Highly unlikely. Sorry. (laughs) I totally agree. I totally agree. But but unfortunately, but unfortunately, somebody saying highly unlikely doesn't pass the the regulatory test. Yeah. My highly unlikely won't get you very far. No, it doesn't get you very far. So, (laughs) So theoretically, you could make, you know, many, many large devices, for example, and only be testing to your point. Like mm-hmm. just a couple millimeters of it. Yep. You know, and it's 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 um, just so you can a- a- account for that potential potential interaction of either yeah. materials or chemicals coming from them. So it can, you know, it's something you got to think about, and it seems wasteful from a from a a, a device perspective, right? Especially for some of these devices yeah. that are really really pricey to make. But you know, the reality is something you just got to bite the bullet for yeah. lack and, of a better term. And then likewise, you know, you certainly may not fit it all into one study. If you're doing a two-week interval, just throwing that out there, you might need one group for this for component, yep. another group for this component, and a third group for this one. Or you might be combining different sites in the same number. And, and yeah, it just, again it doesn't have the benefit of extraction where you can put it all into a pot and say, okay, let's cook it for, you know, three days at 50 degrees C and I can put 25 different materials in there. 
Now, implantation, it's not the same character, unfortunately. So, yeah, just another reason then when you're making your preclinical, you're looking at your preclinical model and you're going to be implanting this in to see how it works. You know, great, great time to make sure you're writing into that protocol and a value of local tissue effects. So in to be able to help yourself down the road, it might not meet everything part six is says exactly, but it's going to give you a really, really great piece of data to use in support of part six. Yeah. And potentially even the hemocompatibility aspect. If and you're potentially hemocompatibility. Yeah. If you're in the yeah. blood, for sure. You know, and, and that that's what I think that. You know, these preclinical, we'll say functional type studies, you can gain a lot of information from those if you design it appropriately, right? Because how many times have we seen where they say, you know, we're lacking a thrombogenicity type endpoint and you say, well, we've got this preclinical study and you're like, well, that's good. That's helpful. But did you actually look? They didn't look. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Nothing bad happened. Nothing bad happened. I'll give you that. (laughs) But, but, But did you actually look? Methods included in the protocol and all that stuff. Yep. So back in my sales days, I had that happen to a customer. They had a very large preclinical study and they, I think it was actually Japan that was asking for thrombogenicity and they had all this preclinical data and they said, but where in your protocol does it say you're going to evaluate thrombogenicity? And it just, you know, we had to repeat a rather costly thrombogenicity study to meet what they were asking for, even though it felt like all that data was there, it was not an endpoint that was called out to be evaluated in the protocol. Yeah. Can can we just assume that the comment no adverse reactions were noted means no <laughs> right? thrombus was on the device? <laughs> well, it's definitely supportive. <laughs> could could be, but highly unlikely. <laughs> So, um, what about, so there's those devices that I just thought about this, the, you know, I can't put this giant tubing set with all these complicated things into an extract. So what about filling as an extract method? I mean, I know that, that you can define your test article and use that. We've kind of got off into extract, but I think it still helps you with defining your test article, knowing that your test article is this whole system, runs through a machine, runs around whatever, that you can actually use that test article in the extract studies. Yeah. And I think that it certainly becomes, it's allowed for in part 12 in terms of, you know, and it allows you to select the final product and it has its advantage over immersion because if there's differences on the outside, then the inside, you don't expose that stuff. Yeah. With that, if you have ink markings and all that type of stuff on the outside, just because your extract's going through the inside, don't think you can just avoid putting the ink markings on the outside because I've had migration questions Questions. raised, you know, because of that. So just keep it all the same. But I would say the one drawback for filling is like, if there are rather large reservoirs in your filling process, if there's a way you can minimize the amount of vehicle in those large areas and still contact all the surfaces, that would be definitely advantageous, I would say, if possible. I'm just staring at your water bottle there. And I'm just thinking if we were to extract that based on surface area, it'd probably be less volume than what was needed to fill it. Yeah. You know, so doing a fill extraction, could that be viewed as, as diluting the sample? Possibly in some cases. Yeah. You know, so you just, you'd have to be careful there. You have to be careful. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, because your ratios aren't going to, typically, they're not going to work out. I mean, I remember some cases where we made them work out, taking foil pouches and measuring the internal surface area and then putting the vehicle down and then crimping the foil down to where it was filled. And that was, we got the ratio to live. But that, you know, not everything's going to allow you to do that, obviously. You can't adjust the area exposed in that manner. But, um, yeah. All right. Well, we've we've ad-libbed this pretty good. Did we, anything that you wanted to cover, Don, that we haven't? Well, I have two things, but I'm not going to go into them in great detail, but just things to think about. Okay. Put it out that way, because otherwise we'll dive off for another 30 (laughs) minutes into the uh, abyss here. We probably Uh, better get back to our trainees in case they have questions. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) there's that. You know, I, I, I would say, you know, think about your devices in the context of as the patient would be exposed to them. So if there's any... For yeah. the IFU processing that happens to happen, if you get a non-sterile device for the IFU, you have to clean, disinfect, and sterilize. Well, then that's what you should do before your biocomp test. That one. If you have a device that is an implant that's loaded onto a delivery system in the mm. surgical suite, for your implant, all those processes are an extension of what happened in terms of manufacturing. So you want to simulate all that stuff before you test your implant. I've seen that one literally be significant enough that it was indicated if it wasn't done, all the biocomp had to be repeated. And we're talking mm. an implant. Yeah. So, you know, that's pretty huge. And there was, yeah. we tried like crazy to convince the regulator <laughs> otherwise, and it, it was going nowhere. So, um, yeah, just think about that type of stuff. What it's Did you try before it highly unlikely it. that it would cause? Did yeah, I think we use that. We use negligible, <laughs> minimal, negligible. Uh, minuscule. <laughs> all great words. All great words. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. That, that, in fact, that's all they are, though. That's the problem. <laughs> Slim chance to none. Yeah. Slim to none. Yeah. All right. Didn't well, work. good. We don't have a game today, do we? We didn't prep. Yeah, I told Phil that he didn't have to because you know he's he's played the game before. We've put him through it, you know. You know, let's play a different game. Oh, oh no! Let's see, this will work. I'm gonna turn up the volume on my phone. Microphone's doing too good a job filtering out background noise. Apparently, right. no. We I can mean, make this work. we can make this work. Sherry, <laughs> you just make the sound with your mouth, <laughs> and then and then and then go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Believe me, I thought about it, but I'm like, there's no way I can do this. What? And it's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it doesn't come through. That's wild. So m- these must be filtering out. Really good at filtering out sounds. We'll have to see if it shows up on the recording. Because then afterwards, I'll make you listen to the recording and you can identify it. And then I'll edit it. I'll edit it in. So if, uh, if you're able to identify it, I will give you credit and edit you into the podcast. <laughs> It's one that I'm seeing a lot of in my bird feeders right now, but I don't know if it's common. Are you playing one for me? Nothing. Did that come through to you? No. Sorry, I muted. Listen, did you hear that one? No. Eh. Oh, see, same thing. Good microphone. I guess. Did you hear that? One? American turkey. There we go. No, no, wrong. That was no, nope, no. Nope, that was uh, a. That was a. That was a Portuguese turkey. <laughs> um, gray turkey. <laughs> I'm kidding. That doesn't exist. I just made that up. <laughs> I don't know if Portuguese turkey exists either. 
Oh, well, I think that that's been fun. I'll make it a game anyway. People will think we had a game, but we really didn't have a game. So there we go. All right. Well, thanks, y'all. This is good. I think we answered a lot of questions. So uh, until next time. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast. 